right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Two Planker Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Schaefer, and today we are celebrating episode 50. I started this podcast in December 2020, and the idea was just to interview people working in the sports industry, because that's the industry I wanted to work in, so I just kind of wanted to meet some new people, find out their stories, find out how I can make it work, and uh, obviously it's evolved to become entirely ski-focused, but I want to reshare one of the first episodes I ever recorded. This episode is with my friend Pasang Karma Sherpa, and he's a trekking guide that lives in Nepal. Uh, I met him on a volunteer trip and trek to Everest Base Camp back in 2018. So when I started this podcast in 2020, I wanted to interview him and share his story. Uh, so this, the episode that's going to play after this is the episode that we recorded back then, right in the middle of COVID. It was the third episode ever recorded, so it's not my best work. Audio quality is not the best, but I wanted to reshare Pasang's story so you guys can find out what it's like growing up in the Himalayas and navigating life there. This will also be the last episode of the summer. We're going to take the rest of July and August off and then come back in September with weekly episodes focusing on athletes. So the small business episodes are done for a little while. Maybe we'll run that back again next summer. We'll see. But, um... Yeah, that's the plan for now. I believe that's all for the intro. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. And yeah, here it is, episode 50 with Pasang. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's been a very long time. Yeah. So do you just want to start with where you grew up and kind of what your parents did and, and just your life, basically? Yeah, I'll start with my uh, with uh, how I grew up in my village. I, I was born, brought up um, when I was a kid. I was brought up in my village. So, um, you know, um, in a village, we have like uh, my school was like, like kind of one hour far from, uh, from my house. So we had to walk there. Um, and um, but before that, we had to wake up at like 4, 4 a.m and um, go to the woods uh, to fetch some uh, firewood and some, um, you know, uh, some food for the cattles, like some, um, what do you say, some fodder or something like that for the cattles. And then uh, come home and um, have breakfast and then rush to school, school, of course. And sometimes, most of the time, I would be late to school, you know, because I was doing a lot of stuff at my home. That was when, that was, that's when I was like five years old. Yeah. Wow. So, and, so, and so what village was that? Uh, it's a village uh, uh, right below Lukla called uh, Karikola, uh -huh. and uh, very very big big village. Um, I mean, uh, one of the biggest in my um, commune right now. Um, so yeah, uh, that's that's how how I started when I uh, when I knew what life lifestyle was. Like when I knew what is <clears throat> what life was. That's when I, what I remember. Like I used to go to like forest or to the jungle and find some like, you know stuffs for the home or for the cattle, and then go to school. Like, that was my like every day every like day to day life, and then. Uh, uh, as long until I until I was brought to Kathmandu by my dad, he was uh, he was working here as a trading poor in the, in the beginning, and then uh, we don't have we was we were kind of like um, um, poor I, I I would say because we didn't have enough money to um, go to a good school or we didn't we we not have enough money to come to Kathmandu and like go to a boarding school or something like that. Boarding school is kind of privileged here, like private private boardings are kind of privileged here. It's other way around, uh, like in Europe. I think I think in the states it's the like government schools are be better or Government universities are better, but here is the other way around. The, the private institu institutions and private schools are better here, and um, yeah. So everybody, all most of the parents, even now, would like 
um, you know, focus on bringing the child <clears throat> to Kathmandu and putting them in a in a boarding school where they can have like that. And to have a to boarding school, when it comes to boarding school, it means like it's a proper English education. So not, it's not only Nepali, but um, they would focus on English education. So all of the teachings would be like through the English medium. So it was, and that's why like everybody like you know they want their kids to go to boarding school and so. Mm-hmm. And so you go to Kathmandu, and your dad enrolls you in boarding school. Yeah. Uh, what, and I, I told you like when I was like four, when I was like five, I knew what life was. I wasn't sure what life was about. And then after like a year later, I was brought to Kathmandu by my dad. Yeah. And um, he he put me into boarding school in a hostel. So okay. you know, that's how how I came to uh, came to learn my English there. So your dad worked as a porter. Would yes. He, would he was he was he for trekking or for climbing? Yeah, he was for uh, trekking in the beginning, of course, because uh, in the climbing, uh, during those times, was there were like very few climbs. I mean, there were like, not not like right now, because now like, you have like maybe over like 50, 60 groups um, per season. But this, during those times, maybe there were like barely like five, six groups. And it was like very difficult to like get seat in that, uh, you know, get like a reserve seat in, in, into that place. And it was a kind of privilege. And even now, um, like people that, that are kind of ignorant or in, uneducated or something like they don't, they don't like look at the risk. They only look for the money. Like they, they get like you know, they own a lot of money. Or even if they die or of something, they will like have a lot of huge compensation on that. So they will uh, particularly focus on that one, on on having a lot of money. That's it. When you were growing up, did most of the men in your village work as porters and and trekking guides? Um. Yes. Most of the people that didn't have uh, enough education or like uh, like like uh, lacked knowledge on on trekking or anything like that, they would start as a porter. So slowly they would know what's going on, what's what's the uh, what's the scenario of, uh, of the whole trick or something like that, and then they would understand it, and slowly they will train themselves uh, uh, to be guides. Uh, like they will train themselves on like guiding experience or English language or any other foreign language. They would they would they would and then they will uh, shape up themselves to to be able to go to that that level, and then they will just upgrade themselves to like maybe guides. First, of course, for assistant guides, and then guides. And then the leaders, and then like you know, like mountain mountain guides, something like that. Yeah. Who provides the the training for the the young guys trying to learn? Um, the, these days, you know, it's the government that uh, that provides all the education, like the Ministry of Tourism and Civil Aviation, that they provide every year. There's every year, two times two times a year, like during one during winter and one in summer, they provide um guides training. Mm-hmm. Is that is that how you learned? Yes, yes. Uh, in in 2009, when I finished completed my high school, um. I thought there was, uh, you know, my family was even struggling in those times because my dad was working alone in the family and he had to like feed maybe like six people. We were all like relying on him, like we didn't have any jobs, anything like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I had my two, two brothers and my, myself, of course, and my mom and my uh, my sister, of course. And so he had to like feed all of these, these people. Like we were, we were like five people like relying on him alone. So and then I, I felt a need that maybe because I'm the eldest son uh, in the, you know, of course, this is like Asian uh, Asian culture. So in Asian culture, you like you are more more responsible when you are elder, of course. So and then I thought um, maybe I should start start working, or maybe I should do something else to earn for the family because my dad can't do it like anymore. Not not that he couldn't do it anymore, but he had like a lot of strain on him. Like I uh, think every day thinking of like how many people, how many mouths he had to feed. So I thought I should work, and then um that's that's how I, when I started like I asked, asked him. Can I go on a on a trek like assistant guide because I, I can speak a little bit English and then maybe I can help you translate things like that and then um, that's how I started like okay I want to go tre- on a trek maybe on a, on a Purna or maybe Everest maybe Langtang I want to go on a trek anywhere you want you want to go please take me as it as it I requested him and then that's when first time when he took me to Annapurna 
and that's how I learned what is the what was the whole situation is what 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 what's going on in, in the in the trekking area. So, and um, of course, I didn't get paid for it. I mean, uh, you know, but he saved some money instead of hiring another another person and paying him. He he paid he saved some money on myself because he didn't have to pay. I said you don't have to pay me. I just want to have the experience of what trekking is actually. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's basically it. Great. And so your mom wasn't working. No, she wasn't. She, um, you know, in a in a Asian culture, um, I don't know if we have studied about Eastern or Western culture differences, but in Asian culture, culture and 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 particularly in the Sherpa culture, like or in the Hindu culture, there's always like the father, the father, the head of the family, working for the whole family, and uh, you know, feeding all of them, be it like the kids or sometimes even they're like maybe my my uncles or even even if my uncle is like not like grown up enough to, uh, you know, earn himself. He will still have to like feed the family, whole family. That's how it works, and that's why um, this. That's why like Nepalese people are like a lot more dependent on their, on their father or a mother, whoever is working in in, in the family. So, wow. And so, did yeah. your did he have his own company or did he work for somebody else? Uh, yeah, no. Until 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 like two thousand two, he was working for another company, and then in two thousand three. He found he um, and his friends like they they planned up to um, set up a company uh, for himself. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah. you did. So you did your first track in high school, and then did you go to university? Uh, I went to university. I uh, you know um, it's all like uh, like jumbled up my my in my life, life experience right now um, of not having like enough education to to be able to, uh, to be to be a company owner or something like that. Um, still, like it still hinders me. Still, like um, gives me a pain in my heart because, you know, those times I was still struggling with my uh, with my financial uh, situation. My dad like going to Japan sometimes to earn, and then to Europe, and then uh, right after my high school, I started. I had a one year um, gap so that I could work for that for that particular one year, and then maybe um, pursue my education forward after that. After when I when I finish my work, but of course. Uh, after my high school, I went one trek and I came back. And we met um, a German friend of, of dad that he invited us to Germany to um, work, of course, as a tourist, <coughs> tourist visa, but <clears throat> for work as well. So it was pretty much like <clears throat> a very like good chance for me to like, okay, this is something to see different than just inside Nepal or just maybe just inside Kathmandu. So, um, and then I uh, he we applied for a visa, my mom and me for the first time uh, because my dad he was going to Japan. So I applied my visa uh, with my mom. Uh, actually, my stepmom, and then uh, we got uh, luckily we got a visa for for Germany because young people usually don't get a visa uh, in those times. So we got a visa. I worked there for three months. I came back. We earned like a little little money. Of course, we could support the family. My mom and now you know my mom and me both we were working and my dad was working as well. So he was very happy that we were, we were there to support the family. It was like uh, we were no more dependent on him. So he was very happy. And uh, yeah, luckily I got my visa, but. Well, one thing happened. One what what happened was when I came back from Germany, um, you know the deadline for the filling of the form for university level was out already. So my friends that were with, starting with me were like one year ahead of me, and I was like one year behind me. So one year behind. So, and then I I, I thought, you know those times I was like earning thing was like more of a focus than like uh, education thing because I didn't realize right now I realized that I should have gone like further. I should have gone to the university and then I should have done other things, but. Um, you know, those times it was like, okay, I have money now. I can, I can do something else with it. Maybe I can start a business. Maybe I can do something else. It was like a lot, of, lot more with that money than anything like education or something like that. So, mm-hmm. so after that, when did you get involved with freediving? 
Yeah, yeah, you know, in in the, in the course of like trekking and, and all this, you meet so many like people, you know, like so many different people like from different fields of um, you know, uh, expert expertise or something like that. And um, on my trek in two thousand like uh, two thousand eleven, when I was trekking back from Nancha Bazaar, and we stayed in a uh, in a tea house in Monzo, if you remember the place. Um, there, I was sitting with my client. I, I had a one I had one client from the United States, of course. And um, uh, we we did like the trek was trek went pretty fine. It was very good. He went to base camp to Kolapathar and did everything. He was very happy. And on the way back, um, we were sitting on a table, uh, sitting for our, uh, our dinner. We had dinner and we were just discussing about tomorrow's ideas and things like that. And next to our table, there was like um, it was it was pretty like um, a rushy time because there were, lot, there were a lot of people in there. But uh, next to our table, there were two ladies. Of, um, uh, later on, there I knew they were from Sweden, of course. But and then. Um, I, I chatted with my with my client. I told him everything about all the details about, about tomorrow, next plan, all stuff like that. He even asked me like more questions about my life and stuff like that. And we were like discussed for about half an hour, just like you know, a casual discussion or something like that. And then, uh, and then I left. I said uh, good night. I need to go. Maybe um, I'm, you know the guys eat afterwards, so I had to go eat my dinner. My client already had dinner, his dinner, so I went for dinner. But when I after I came back, maybe half twenty minutes later, I came back from dinner. I said I wanted to say goodbye, to, good night to him again. And then um, these these two ladies were already connecting to him. Like they was they were asking him questions about um, how he got there and then uh, how like who I was and stuff like that. So she both of them started questioning about um, the Sherpas because later on there I found out that they were um, studying about Highlanders versus Lowlanders. Uh, how 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 why why do Sherpas do so well in Highlands and uh, why can't the Lowlanders do the same thing in the Highlands? So they were studying about all of these things, and then, uh, yeah, and then uh, luckily in, in the next morning, in the breakfast during the breakfast, I got to connect to her uh, because my client had told, said a lot of things about me. He said he's a very good guy, something blah, blah blah, you know, a lot of things, you know, a lot of. Uh, and then she was very impressed, and she asked me if I could be maybe in a subject in her study about Highlanders. Because I'm I'm a Highlander, so she wa- she wanted me to be a subject in there, and um, yeah, I, I began. I we came to Kathmandu. Uh, I was uh, her subject. She made made me do a lot of like uh, you know. Um, exercising and stuff like that, and maybe cycling or or running or something like that, so that she could like test my blood or something. And then my um, I would say performance uh, on uh, different like uh, different levels of uh, you know altitude or something like that. And then and then they went back. Everything went normal, and we had a contact, of course, contact. And then um, she went back. Um, everything was back to, again, like um, what I was doing. And um, in 2012, she invited me to Sweden. Luckily, you know, she was. She was very impressed with uh, how I was, how like my, my body was reacting to her, uh, to her studies and stuff like that. And so she invited me to Sweden uh, to see if I was um, doing better in the lowlands with it because I was already doing good in the highlands. So she to see if I was doing better in the lowlands. And um, and then I went, I flew to Sweden in 2012. Um, I I flew there and then um, um, you know she she was um, uh, later on I found out she was also a diving instructor. She um, she was um. Physiological. Um, she was a professor um, of uh, science and physiology in in, in, the, in the Sweden Swedish University, and then um, she had her own diving club, small diving club, where we where she stayed nearby. And then, and then she asked me to like, um, um, you know, every every Sunday and Tuesday they would go they would go for diving and swimming. I didn't know that, but she asked me if if I ever knew swimming or anything. If I if I was familiar with the water, and I said no, I, I can't swim because I was in in Kathmandu. I went like a couple times. My dad took me a couple times to a swimming pool and. You know, we always like wasted ourselves and come back, but because we didn't learn anything there, so my dad didn't know how to swim as well. So, and um, 
So I was there. She said, if I ever knew how to swim, and I said no. And then she gave me like, you know, we bought a lot of trunks and stuff for the swimming, swimming gears and stuff like that. And then she asked me, she taught me how to swim, of course. And then at the same time, because um, this was the same time when she was teaching me swimming and teaching free diving to her uh, students as well. So she would uh, ask me to do a task, maybe like uh, stay underwater for maybe like 20 seconds and then come up, Sim similar task. She gave me a small task and then she would go to her students and teach, teach different things with different gears, so many like fancy gears, you know, like um, flippers and, you know, like snorkels and stuff like that. And I was like, I was always amazed, like, what is what are those things like? Maybe I want to try those. And she said, no, you have to have, uh, have, to, have to know how to swim first. And then, yeah, and then I was very eager, like, okay, I will learn how to swim and I'll learn these things. And I learned swimming in um, in like three days. I learned how to float in three days. And then um, and then I asked her, can I like maybe try the flipper or maybe uh, like mass, like, like lock, stuff like that. And then she said, yeah, you're free to try it, but, but it will have safety for you. So she kept me like one safety in the water, one safety on the land. So that, that way I wouldn't drown or maybe kill myself. So, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I tried the first time and um, it was very good. I experienced pretty well. Like I could swim better with with the fins than with my legs because I I, I learned then then I learned that what about buoyancy and uh, like how to float like better and stuff, stuff like that. Once I put on the flippers, so uh, she thought I was doing better with that, and um, she only not, didn't think that she thought she thought maybe as a Highlander maybe I had a because when he started she started me. Uh, she, I mean particularly like not me but uh, Highlanders versus Lowlanders, um, or maybe particularly the Sherpas I would say. Uh, she studied about my spleen. She studied, studied my lung volume, and um, she comparatively she found out that um, you know the Sherpas or the uh, or the or people living in Highlands have like uh, bigger lungs, a little like long the lung capsule was a little larger, and the spleen like function was better um, <clears throat> because um, uh, and then um, she found out this and she said maybe you could do better in uh, free diving. I mean free diving was about like breath holding and stuff like, and then swimming underwater. And then I said I will try, of course. Um, and then I tried. And the first time I went, maybe like barely like 45 seconds. I said, oh, I can't do it. But then she said it's all about technique. You can you can if you like uh, if you uh, master all the techniques, you can do it like much better. And then yeah, we uh, we like kept um, practicing for a week, and then maybe. Um, at least, at least like for two times a week, so I was, I, I practiced like maybe six times in a month uh, or maybe like eight times in a month. And then there was this, this 2012, there was this Swiss free diving championship that was going on in Sweden. Um, so, so different parts of a different town, but it was further, but it's going. And then she, because she's part of the diving association, she's uh, also instructed in the, in the diving association of Sweden. So she's, um, she proposed that uh, maybe I should be a, like a, um, I, sh I should also be competing, or maybe I should be like a guest uh, a competitor or something like that. And then yeah, they accepted and they said maybe yeah you can be like first uh, first diver to, like to start the diving um, diving competition and maybe you can be a starter a guest starter nation for for me and and then that's how we started. Like um, she said yeah you're you're in from Nepal so because there was nobody from Nepal we googled it we searched all the data and there was no one in Nepal that was listed as free divers. So um, and then she. Um, and we went there. She uh, she made me a, like a, a nice suit with uh, like uh, with written Nepal on my back. You know, it was kind of proud moment for me um, because you know it's just something new to try and something new uh, new thing for Nepal as well. Because since Nepal is a landlocked country, we don't have like more access to water, and that's why we don't like we don't, a lot a lot of Nepalese still don't know how to swim. So yeah, and then we went there. Um, I started diving, and my first free diving uh, first. Um, swim underwater with fins was like only like 60 meters, barely 60 meters uh, in one breath, of course. 
but I did like a, a lot better in my breath holding. That's that's called static um, static uh, apnea. Um, in my breath holding, I held my breath for like three minutes and thirty three seconds. Incredible, you know. It was like um, even I didn't believe myself. Three minutes thirty three seconds. In my like um, seventh try for free diving, the ABC said it was very 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 impressive um, because you know uh, a lot of people have to like do a lot of tries, a lot of like practices to master these techniques. And then I was able to like hold my breath for three minutes and 33 seconds. It was incredible. And it was a big achievement for me. <clears throat> and that's how like everything started from uh, from Nepal to Sweden and the free diving and all these. Yeah. Wow. And so after after the, the Swiss competition, were you were you finished with your free diving career? Um, no, it didn't, it didn't end there because that was only my like um, introductory level of training to that uh, free diving, of course. And then we went to, um, we, went, we were swimming already uh, since I was doing like so well. I mean, she said, maybe we could, we could try to the ocean because we live uh, in the inland, uh, we, we live in the coastline of the of Swedish coastline. So we were like, we had access to, you know, like this big, uh, huge uh, Baltic Sea. So we went we went into the sea, we, we, were, uh, we were like um, practicing there. Later on, we went, I went, uh, she took me to France in 2014, where there was also competition, but I wasn't, I wasn't a starter or I wasn't a competitor there. I was like a, I was barely helping her take our data because she was still studying those, these competitors, like competitors from all over the world, like you know, the best competitors in the world. So, um, and I was studying these people, like um, they're like um, you know, taking the data of how of, about their lung capacity and all this and all the stuff. So, um, yeah, but but then of course in France in um, in Nice, I was also swimming uh, in the. They were, she was also teaching me how to like deep dive and all these things. And we went to Norway to do the same thing, and then. That's how like my basic training completed uh, uh, from uh, she, she made me do my basic trainings, but I haven't yet done my advanced training on freediving. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Wow, that's amazing. So so yeah. transitioning back to trekking. So when you weren't doing the freediving, you were working as a, as a trekking guide, right? Yes. And so who, who are you working for? What was your kind of schedule for the year? And, and what was what was your setup during that time? Yeah, uh, you know, in a, in a year like we have like two seasons a year, and then like two off seasons. So like summer and winter would be off, and then spring and autumn would be like um, see pre, pre, uh, more like a peak season. So during seasons, I went. Um, I was working with, with my dad's company because he had established the company in two thousand three, back in two thousand three. So at the time, two thousand, uh, I started working in two thousand twelve, something like that. It was already like maybe you know ten years old company. So I was working for him. And I was, uh, but I never went freelance. I, I, I was working, was working for him. Like I was doing a double shift. Like, I was also doing the accounting in his office. That way I saved some money for his, he couldn't have to pay the accountant. So I saved some money for him. And then uh, I was also, and then, uh, you know, actually I, I, after my second trick, I started working for him as, as an accountant. I was working, making, like making, doing phone calls and doing all the things in the office rather than just going to the field. Um, but then I, I realized that um, there was more interesting thing on the field than staying in the office, like, you know, all day long there. So I said, maybe I should hire someone else for a content. I want to be a trekking guide. And then, uh, yeah, uh, in 2009, I took my uh, first, my guide's training. And then um, I went to, um, actually my first trekking uh, was, uh, the first ever training trekking with my dad was 2004, I guess. I, I went, when I was, I went with my dad to Annapurna. But then I, I had my license, uh, like proper guide license in 2009, to the training in 2009. And then I had, I had my license in um, 2010. And then I started working for him um, since then. When you were first learning, did you ever feel physically challenged? Like what were these, were these treks difficult for you? Yes, yes. The first time, like I, when I, I told you I went to Annapurna, you know, 
Annapurna is barely like 3,800 meters. That's like maybe maybe like 9,000 feet, something like that. But I was already struggling with that because I had, um, you know, I, I was never used to like walking or hiking like that. And then uh, first time I had a very difficulty because also the also my first trek was with a lot of like, you know, um, ups and down and a lot of like uh, climbing a lot of hills and stuff like that. So it was kind of hard for me, for me, yeah. So I didn't like quite enjoy it for the first time, <laughs> the first time. Yeah. Have you ever done climbing or has it only been trekking? Um, yeah, I was I was also into climbing um, until 2016. Um, so uh, until then, I was like uh, both climbing and trekking. Um, you know, whenever there was a chance to climb or something like that. But um, in 2016, when my cousin brother died, we, we were on the same expedition to a small peak called Lobuche. Uh, but he died on our way back. We summited uh, the peak. It was pretty good, a very good summit, very timely. Everything went well. But on the way back. When he was supposed to take down the rope, because once you climb, once you fix the lines, and then you, uh, when you when you on your back, uh, usually on the peaks you have to take down the rope so that you don't leave trash on there. But you don't have to do that on Everest, um, because the ice folders will do that. But in little peaks, because you are you're responsible for, um, you know, fixing the lines and then taking the lines down. So um, everything went well. We on the way, we had a summit and we had a very nice picture and we came back. But on our way back, um, I was. I was, um, you know, leading. We were like three Sherpas and two clients. I was leading the clients because our, because my two Sherpas didn't speak like well English, so they were good in the in their field of climbing and you know fixing the lights and stuff like that. But they weren't like that good in, in communicating in English with the clients. So I was uh, always, you know, always like together with my clients. So they they put us to safe side, and then uh, on our way back. He uh, accidentally he fell down off, off the mountain and he like died there, and it was very horrific for for us because um, you know, like I don't know if we, if we call nature or if we call like karma or anything like that. As soon as he fell and we knew that he was he died, the whole cloud like like you know rushed into us like we were like trapped you know like maybe some something some kind of like cyclone or something kind of like the cloud was like very dark and we were like very frightened because it was a broad daylight it was like 10 a.m. in the morning, and that thing happened and it was like. You know, if the mountains didn't want us to be there, or if you know something was going on there, so we were like, that was my first first uh, ever climb. Sorry, that was, I think that was my second climb to the same mountain. I I, I had climbed before that, but uh, and then um, that year, like you know, we had a very difficult time because uh, he he fell off the mountain. Now we don't know where he is. Either died or either um, you know. And then I had very little mountain climbing experience until then because I had, of course, I knew I had a little basics about. How to climb, how to you know fix lines, but you know I didn't have proper knowledge of rescuing a person if he, somebody falls or something like that. So, and neither did my other sherpa. So, two of the sherpa, one of the one of them died, and the other came like um, very like he was very, you know, nervous and say like, oh, Chongba fell down the mountain. What what should we do? And I was like, you know, my clients got pretty scared too, and they said maybe you should take us to safe side first. And then I said, um, I thought, and even though like there was other. Two other groups too, but and we all decided that maybe we should we should head down first, because um, you know, um, next thing could be like somebody else falling off as well. So uh, because the weather was changing very rapidly, there was like a lot of clouds coming, like and then we were like barely finding our way back because it was um, you know snowing a little, a lot of snow snow as well. All of a sudden it was because it was whenever we were on the summit there was sun of course we could see sun we could see everest we could see a lot of things we could see very Pretty good panorama of all the North surrounding mountains, but on our way back, that happened like all of us in maybe like ten minutes time. Everything started like a different thing. You know, it was a different mountain. We, we felt it was a different mountain. So we rushed back. You know, we rushed back to camp, 
and we I, I rushed the same day I rushed my clients back to Kathmandu sorry back to lower camps because you know we were all afraid there and then I had to contact my dad because um, you know uh, somebody has to know in an office so they can organize a rescue helper or something like that I called my dad through my satellite phone because my phone wouldn't work so I called him and said the Chongba is no more he, he, we lost him on the mountain because he fell off the mountain and then and then they were all like worried but um Luckily, on the on that group, because we had uh, we had our um, team leader uh, from the United States, he he was very good uh, in rescue and stuff like that. So he said um, maybe we should organize a helicopter, like maybe like one at least one or two rounds of helicopter search, uh, sudden rescue operation. So that's when he sent helicopter to our to where we were, and then we went uh, the other Sherpa and me we went on a rescue to see if he's uh, if he's there or not. And then on the helicopter we couldn't see because you know like you know our eyes could barely see. Like that, that tiny object down there because I couldn't go like pretty much near. It was only only like uh, uh, going around and around the mountain. So we said this is useless. So we should, we had aboard the mission and then we went back to back to um, uh, the same spot we were. That's called Tukla. It's just just below uh, Lopache. <clears throat> and then uh, and then and then the uh, next day, of course, the other Sherpa and me. Uh, we'll, I I I put my clients to safe side. They they were rescued out of the out of Ferishe. In a, in a helicopter and then my purse went down and it was only me and my other shaper so we thought maybe we should go on foot back and maybe if we fell out of mountain maybe he fell the way down there maybe he's at the base of the mountain because that's that's what we thought in those times but when we went we went there to the base of the mountain and we saw there were like so many like um you know false false summits before even because when you see a mountain you just barely see a whole big stone like very like you know slippery stone if you fall off you just fall off the base and we thought that and we went to the base and there was nothing there so we were like hungry. We were like tired. We were like cold. But we were still, we never like stopped searching for him. And then we went like uh, two days in a, in, a, in, a, in a row. Like we didn't even eat properly. We didn't even sleep well. We were getting questions from so many people. Like I, I went online as, as soon as I went online on the internet, I would get so many questions about from different people, different companies. Like what happened there and all these things. And so I was like kind of um, you know frustrated. And then uh, and then I had to call my dad and say we should uh, we should like you know, organize a rescue like a human rescue team. So that we could climb to the peak, we could go from the same sort of we feel. We should like uh, rappel down and we should find his body and something like that. Yeah, and we did that. And then uh, in two days' time, our rescue team arrived to uh, Lobuche, and then we showed the. Um, well, we were, we went to the peak again. We that, when they arrived, they rested, and the next morning we went early morning. So we had like uh, six people uh, in in a team. Two of us stayed at Lobuche to see uh, to find out like if they were if they found the body we would have organized and have again because it was there's no cell reception or any coverage in the, in the mountain so of course we had already sets and stuff like that um, but it would be like, more sensible to call from there instead of everybody going rushing up there so four people like uh good shapers all from, our, from my same village they went to the mountain and then um and they found the body of course they um they found the body they brought up the body and then they are called us say we need more help because you know carrying the red body would be like very difficult for mounting it was okay on the on the on the snow part because you could drag him we had like a nice um you know um uh, thing for it for him to wrap up and it was possible to drag down but it was there were more rocky parts where you could you could, you could damage the you know um stretcher or anything like that that we used for him to rescue so yeah, of course. After after they they informed us that informed us that uh, he they found the body. I and my other other Sherpa, we 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 went again to the top. We were rushing there. You know, normally it would take us maybe like like um, five six hours to get there. It only took us like two and a half hours to get to the top because we were rushing like we were in such a rush that uh, to find out if he's doing like if it was uh, you know if we, if there would be any any other extension. So we were kind of afraid. So we we rushed to the 
to the summit. We went there, <clears throat> and we brought him, brought his body back, and like, but we couldn't. It took us maybe like ten hours to get his body down to the to the base where the where we could um have a, call the helicopter. So that night we couldn't we couldn't we were late because we started in the in the, in the four four in the morning, but we didn't uh, couldn't we were not able to bring the body down until eight in the eight in the night. So in the night eight in the night we um brought the body down to the base camp, but not to Lobache because Lobache is a settlement area and people would be like kind of afraid if we brought the dead body there. So all of us decided that. We should maybe because there was not any wild animals to eat dead body anything like that to destroy it. So we thought we should we should mount the body to a high um, high rock and then put it there and then leave it over there overnight and then maybe come the morning. Yeah, and that's what we did. We we mounted the body um, pretty much high uh, in the on the on the big rock and we went to Lobache. We had food. We and then we rested. Next morning, 5 a.m. Uh, we woke up and we brought the body down to the heli helipad and. Um, and we called the helicopter, and we all all rescued. We got rescued out of out from there, and we can, we went to uh, some of the, they took the dead body to Kathmandu for postmortem, because that's how that's how it happened. And then, uh, and um, I went to my village, and then you know we were still scared. And that's and that's that that particular incident, um, now you know like like told my brain or told me that you should stop climbing because this is kind of risky for you because without no knowledge you cannot do that. And, and then since then I stopped climbing. Uh, any, any higher, higher than Kalapath or anything like that. So, so you stopped climbing after yeah, that. Yeah, I stopped climbing after that. Yeah. And so, are those accidents common? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty common. But um, common. Uh, um, but you know, you know, uh, to be honest, this uh, that accident uh, accident was particularly it happened because of that person's um, overconfidence. You know, he had no helmet. We we even my clients. I uh, as a lead guy, I told him you have to have a helmet. You have to have a safety thing. Everything like he wouldn't do that. He didn't even bring his sunglasses. He was too confident that he had climbed the same mountain multiple times. And he said, I have climbed this. Maybe this is maybe this is my 12th climb or 15th climb. I, I don't have to uh, wear a helmet, anything like that. And he was like very you know, stubborn, should not listen to us. And so, and then also well, later on, we, we realized, we found out that his safety um, safety uh, rope wasn't on the rope. He, he His safety was attached to his harness. So it means it was his fault to you know how he fell. I mean, if he had if he had his safety on, he would have fall, fallen like not very far, but at least he wouldn't he wouldn't have died. You know, he would have been in, in, on the rope. So that is because of his own mistake, he he died of a um, fall from the mountain. So mm -hmm. a lot of Sherpas do this line of work, right? Yeah. Yeah. So is there some sort of insurance that they can get for their families? Yes. Yes. By by luck, you know, luckily, uh, we were three Sherpas, including myself. Of course, my I was lead, lead um, Sherpa. And then we had like two more climb, two more climbing Sherpas. Uh, so um, um, luckily, he was the, because you know uh, you can only only insure like one person on a, on, a, on a, only the lead lead uh, climbing Sherpa is insured actually. And then luckily, his insurance he was on the insur insur insured um, he was the insurer he was insured so he got um, commission after that from wow. his family yeah. So after that, you go you go more towards trekking. And when did it go from you working for your your father to you starting your own trekking company? Yeah, um, you know, uh, after all this happened, and then I was like kind of more frust frustrated and you know, you know like doing like uh, repeated treks all the time, like going to base camp, uh, maybe like four times, five times a season, and it was like kind of like I was doing the same thing all all in all again. It was like for me, it was like staying in the office again, like you know, I felt the same thing like again. I mean, I was doing the same thing all the time. I wouldn't as a trek guy, I would have. I was always looking forward to like different destinations, different like you know, 
um, areas of Nepal or maybe even like India or you know Tibet and something like that. But then I always was because my dad's company always ran like um, um, private group treks to ABC and then you know aerospace camp, and so they were, pro they were particularly focused on aerospace camp. And, and you know by the time he's come, uh, by the time I was working maybe like uh, two, four years in in a row, I, I had already climbed like twenty times to aerospace camp. So it was like I thought maybe I should do something else. Um, uh, but of course, and then, uh, and then I thought, okay, in 2017, I thought, okay, maybe I should live trekking here. Maybe I should go to Europe or maybe work there, uh, where life's better, or maybe where like earning is more, more, much more like, you know, um, better or something like that. And then I thought, okay, I'll apply to apply for Sweden again. I'll try to work there. I'll try to get a visa to work permit there. And I'll try to maybe live there or maybe, you know, even bring my family there. And then, um, I was, I was in the course of like, like thinking that it was my thought and I was just about to put it on like practically um, that's when like I got a call from, I was in my village and I got a call from my dad. They said, there's two clients that want to meet you. They want, they want us to um, help them, um, you know, that also help them set up, set up their program in here in Nepal because they're going to do a volunteering program here in Nepal. And then uh, I said, okay, maybe um, one final time, let's do it. <laughs> and I went, I, I met, that's when I met Dan and then uh, another like guy working for Give, who was Give volunteers. Um, I, uh, they they wrote to our to my near to my village and then uh, and then well, I showed them like they wanted to see a school and maybe like a particular school where they could work and a village where they needed much help after the after the earthquake. So um, yeah, so uh, that's when I showed Dan all around and then uh, he said um, maybe we didn't like, but we 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 like um, came to the conclusion that this wasn't the place that needed help or anything like that. So I came, we came to Kathmandu and then we met, that's when we met Jake. And um, uh, with my, we, we sat down with my dad and with Jake, um, you know, Dan and all these um, people that were, they were like, they were like working for the forgive. We sat down and, we, and then we finalized that um, we should go to Gorkha where there was, where it was the epicenter of earthquake in 2015. So we went to Gorkha and we found, um, we found a village called Paslang where, we, where, there, where there was help was needed. It was perfect for. I could see mountains from there on. We go to the river. People were like from different ethnic group. Like there was Hindus, so, so it was like um, pretty much what they wanted to work on. So and that's what is when we started. And then we started like volunteering. And then our group like Jake's. Uh, it was called Give Volunteers. So their groups came uh, kept on coming and then coming and coming and going. We had like uh, maybe we organized like two, two three seasons or uh, two seasons and then. Uh, later on, uh, Jake and Dan, uh, we we sat together and we said uh, they thought we want maybe we need adventure portion besides just rafting and just like paragliding and stuff like that because in those times we had a rafting and paragliding, and and, and then maybe uh, in the first our first programs were like uh, jungle safari and all these things as well. We we were we already had an extra um, ideas of like uh, what to do if if people are not interested in these things, or maybe if people are interested in doing Annapurna or any like mountain treks or in hiking. Scene. And then I said, yeah, I'm, I, I have done base camp maybe like 20 times. Maybe I expertise in that in that area. If you want to run base camp, maybe we should, uh, I'm, I'm ready for it, he said. And then that's when he said, well, that, that, that'd be like perfect. I mean, he, he said he already had so many clients that want to do a mountaineering or climbing or trekking or anything like that. So that's when he start, when we started like Greenpaw Adventures, um, he suggested me that Greenpaw Adventures was, of course, um, it was based in Tanzania, uh, started by David Chogo in Tanzania, but he wanted to have the same name here in Nepal as well. Um, so I, we, we started like Greenpoint Nepal. And then um, 
that's how when I when I set up my own company, then he helped me set up set up my own company. Yeah. So what what was the process of of setting up the company? What's kind of the business landscape of Nepal? Um, you know the train, uh, like so I'm using a train, tri- private train company or or any private company here in Nepal. You have to go through the government of Nepal so that you are like uh, you'll be liable for tax and stuff like that. But of course, not not anything like that. You could you couldn't be sued or anything like that. Uh, of course, uh, there's no like uh, anything like that um, that you can't be sued or anything like that. Yeah, you can you can sue us, and we still have to like figure it out ourselves. The government doesn't do anything to us, so we only pay the tax. And you know, that's the only that's the bad thing that Nepal. You know, we pay so much tax to government, but they barely do anything like uh, like protection, like you know, like something like protection or something like that. If somebody sues, uh, maybe Green Paw or maybe me, we would have to like solely rely on ourselves and on on what what we have done. We would have to like pay money or you know do it on ourselves. So. Yeah, we went uh, for the process is that you have to go to, go to, to the company like government and to, to the government and it takes it is like like a month or like two months to completely establish a company uh, completely like get you all the documents from the government you have to have a government from the tourism ministry from the tourism industry of course itself different uh, you know like we have tourism ministry we have tourism industry division different so two different certificates like um you know for for taxation from the tax office and you have to like have like a, from a local community like you have to have um. Uh, permit from the local community that you are, you are, you can run it around a trekking uh, uh, in this area or something like that. So there's a lot of series of uh, um, documents that you have to give, get from the government. So that's kind of like um, tough. But of course, uh, my dad he you know he knew all these things um, before he because he had been through this lot of, after so far. So he had a lawyer who was working for him all the time. So I hired him and then uh, he made things easy for me. And so I wouldn't have to do the most things. He would just bring the documents to me. I would just send it off and then. Now, and then we just finalized everything and then that's how we started. And so do you get most of your clients from give volunteers? So people that have finished their volunteer trip and they do the, the trek afterwards? Um, yes, yes. Uh, so far, because it's been only only been like a couple of years uh, that we ran our trips because uh, last year we, we couldn't do that. I would say three years. Um, and then uh, actually a couple of years, yeah, because we, we only, only ran like for two seasons. Uh, before that, we, we didn't have every space camp. So... Uh, until then, we only I only got my all my groups from uh, from um, uh, yeah from give volunteers. This year I had like two extra groups from uh, from, from from my friends or not from give up givers or not, not anything from. But I had like two German friends and two other like Swedish friends that wanted, wanted to climb with me. But um, you know everything this all all this happened and we couldn't do it. So obviously COVID has put a kind of a pause on tourism. But what's your plan for the the future of your company? Um, yeah, of course. Uh, I'm 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 already working my with my marketing strategy strategy that I would like like to uh, visit the United States once and then maybe uh, do a marketing um, resource or anything like uh, something like that in, in the United States. Maybe have a representative there that work that could like help marketing uh, with the marketing in there. Of course, give give is my big, biggest marketing source uh, resource right now because you know give would do everything uh, to get the clients, of course, and to, to base camp as well and to broker as well. So. Um, I wouldn't have to do much, but besides that, I want to do my own private marketing for, uh, you know, like, um, you know, with Give, we run trips that um, we don't like, um, not, the, not, the, not the highest level of quality of trekking that we do, with, uh, we run because we run uh, trips, but we run with like, with a certain limited budget that, that way people will have compromise, compromise on everything, like on, on hotels or on, on, you know, everything. But I want to run trips like my dad does. He, he runs quality, runs quality trips. Like, Maybe like maybe one or two a year, but very quality trips that people are like you know, it's the same base camp, same walk, but different payment and different you know, um, um, 
different level of uh, hotels or anything like that. So I would I would love to market for that, and then I would I would I, I would love to like um, get Greenport to next level. Just not just relying on give volunteers, but also like from uh, to other clients as well. So. Mm-hmm. So do you want to stick with trekking, or would you like to add climbing as well? Of course, I have, I have already built my website. I'm, so on my website, I have already put like three or four climbs, not, not like Everest or any 8,000 rest, but I have already added like small peaks like, uh, like, um, like Lobuche or Allen Peak or, or, or Mera Peak. One of the, these three peaks are like uh, very good for, um, for people that, that want to climb higher. So I was, I, was, I was starting with these three peaks first and to see how many clients I get. And then um, uh, so far, we only got like maybe two clients to climb to Loboche and it got canceled this year. So um, not that, but I didn't, I didn't, on my website, I didn't have like um, Everest or any air problems. I only have little peaks so far. So mm-hmm. that, that means we, I, I have put like trekkings and then uh, peaks at the same time. Wow. Do you plan to add mm-hmm. Everest one day? Yes, of course. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's, uh, the Everest market right now in, in Nepal is like pretty tough, pretty like challenging, pretty, uh, you know, pretty competitive. So it will be very really difficult to run Everest trips because, well, you have to be first, firstly, I'm not an Everest climber. I'm, I've not climbed Everest and I, have, I don't have that experience. But um, secondly, you know, um, because of the competitive market is you're, you're, you have to be able to like to run the trip in the lowest, uh, lowest as possible so that people can um, believe you and come to you, your company and again run the trip. Uh, but then you know there are already so many companies that are around the trip, trips like in this in so low, low cost that you can't go below that you know so people you know it's it's it's, um, it's not like in those times that you get people and you want to say let's go to Everest and you can just organize it but now we have to think like maybe 20 times before organizing a uh, trip to Everest camp, Everest, sorry Everest summit or something like that yeah so was there a required number of summits you have to have before you're allowed to guide a group no, I mean at least you should have uh, one Everest climbing experience so that you know what what's going on there, and then you can explain your clients like what what what's, what what goes on there and what what's what's about. I mean that that would I would feel that way because of course there are so many people that don't not have climbed Everest but still run Everest um, trips. But um, you know, I don't have that that uh, that whole like scenario of how Everest is how Everest is run and anything like that. I know I can go to base camp. I still have little knowledge of how people get up there and how they get supplies up there and how they climb and how can they come back. But you know, I don't, since I don't have that particular experience, uh, like personal experience of climbing Everest, um, I wouldn't like maybe like risk on like putting up Everest and then say, maybe when I get maybe perhaps I get like clients when I, I have to question everything because they have dozens of questions before coming up there. So and I wouldn't be able to question. So uh, for now, I would just stick to uh, small peaks. So do you personally hope to summit one day? Uh, yeah, I, I, I hope to summit one day. So for Sherpas, what does the summit mean? Is, is that a common life goal that Sherpas have? You know, honestly, in those times, and even now, the common goal is to earn, that's it. They don't have common goal of like, I want to set foot on Everest, maybe earn names there. Uh, some people, of course, like uh, there are some Sherpas that want to earn name and they do maybe like speed records or maybe like, you know, uh, multiple times to climbing in the same season or, you know, climbing the high, uh, like most number of times. but you know, um, even the people, the Sherpas that climbed the Everest the highest number of times, like that's I think 24 times now, they didn't focus on uh, doing that from when they started, you know. When they started, they wanted to work work for money and that's it. They never f- focused that maybe I will be climbing 24 times, you know. I mean, if he, if he, if he or she had like, if that person had, uh, you know, climbing Everest number of times, 
maybe 24, 25. He would have done it like 30 times now, or maybe even more. But but then in the, in the course of working, he only thought of money, how many, how much money I get from climbing all these things. So yeah, the prime focus would be on earning and not sitting for an average, I would say. In Sherpa communities, how do you how do you guys view porters and and trekking guides and climbing guides? Yeah, you know, of course, you know, when, when you when you say porter, it's only uh, porter. You know, in the trekking field, he's the lowest level of like you know, like work um, worker uh, in the in that in that in that um, particular trekking or climbing uh, climbing um, uh, region. So, uh, porter, of course, he's the lowest, and then of course. In those times, it was even difficult to get like seat for porters. Like my dad, he said he he still like shares his experience with me, and he said like if you if we, one day somebody called me to be a porter, and he said like he wouldn't sleep the whole night, not because he he would be he, thinking he would be tired, but he was very excited. Like oh okay, I'm going to be in expedition. I maybe I'm 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 in for trekking. So I would be like he would he said he was very excited, you know. So. Uh, it doesn't mean that, of course, he's lowest lowest paid and has also have the hardest job to carry himself up up the mountain. But you know, he's equally respected in the in the in the group. And you know, of course, the more respect is to the clients towards the guides and towards the sherpas. But um, Porter, of course, um, yeah, you know, these days it's um, not that hard because you don't have to carry like you know like thirty kilos or thirty five kilos of stuff these days because um, the government has set certain rules for um, porter payment or porter wages and then porter like you know uh, weight uh, luggage uh, weight something like that so you can't let porter carry like 50 kilos or something like that unless he like wants then you have to have a document to say he wants it and then maybe somebody you know some people want to would, would want to on like double money like if he carries double say maybe if the weight uh, now the weight limit is around 20 kilos if he carries 40 or 60 he would own like triple the money of his salary per day. So that's his own choice. He's our own choice. So, but as a company, we are not allowed to like, um, you know, let a product carry like 50, 60 kilos, something like that, you know, on one payment. So, mm-hmm. and so are the people working in the, in the trekking and climbing field, are they respected in, in the mountain communities? You know, there's, there's, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it respect or anything like that or no, no respect, no, or disrespect, but, uh, you know, in the course of working, like, you know, because people, the Sherpa people, either they are farmers or uh, or maybe they are like cow herders or anything like that. And besides that, their job would be trekking. So they, uh, they are always from their ancestors, or not from their ancestors, but from their, the time they knew they were trekking, they have always known that trekking was our own our profession. So they, they wouldn't say anything about bad about profession or being porter or anything like that. They were simply maybe, if somebody was a porter a year, next, next year he becomes a guide. They would respect that because you know he, he has worked hard to, do that, to get to that position or to get to the to be a guy and so uh, we wouldn't talk much about oh he's a porter he wouldn't uh, he doesn't deserve to be um, you know a guy something like that but of course you know we don't talk about like if if, if trekking is bad or trekking is uh, bad of course but of course people what people believe um, in those times and even right now is that people that don't have education or that lack education or that lack experience they go porters because they don't have any any um, all they can do is just carry it, you know. So they, they become poor, and people that have like little knowledge, they become sharpers. And the people that are expertise on trekking field that have been trekking, like have a lot of experience on trekking, they would be like, um, you know, trek leaders or like, um, you know, company owners and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you kind of use Sherpa as an ethnic group, but it's also kind of a job title. Yes. Um. Yes. Um. Right now, when you when you call a Sherpa, you know, in those times, when it, because 
Porter, so Sherpas were one of the ones working as a porter. So this maybe said Sherpas mean also porter. Some books also even read a word like Sherpas means porter. But um, you know, Sherpa was of course always an ethnic group. Um and uh, we were called Sherpas because we, we came from the East, from, from Tibet. So we were Sherpas, people, people of the East are called Sherpas. So um, yeah, and then uh, because they knew Sherpas were into this profession, they also uh, put like Porter as a Sherpa or some, Sherpa as a Porter or something like that. But these days when you call, when you mean Sherpa in, a, in, the, in the trekking um, hierarchy, we would say uh, the trek leader, of course, and then um, the guide and then the Sherpa. So uh, Sherpa would uh, also mean a post right now. Uh, in these days, um, that means assistant guide. So he's assisting the guide, trying to be a next guide next time. So um, yeah, uh, it's, it is ethnicity plus um, a, a, a level of hierarchy in, in a trekking field or in the climbing field. And then the quarters, of course. Has tourism changed the community that you've come from? Um, um, yes, of course. Everybody has prospered to some extent. Uh, not, not that we don't have to like, um, you know, in those times we have to like, when there was no trekking or no, even now people struggle because if, if there's not, because there's no season now, this because of the COVID, there's no season, there's no one working. Um, so people are back to farming, you know, this, this is what they were originally doing. So after the uh, trekking started and then every, everything was, um, you know, a, a different scene for the whole village because everybody, everybody from any, everyone from one, at least one person from one house were going to the trekking. So it was like the whole village was, would be almost empty um, if there was not for, not for women and for children. But um, yeah, so, uh, you know, at least it has changed the lifestyles of people to a large extent, I would say. In a, so, but in a positive way. Yeah, in a positive way, yeah. So do you think in general that it's been, that the rise in tourism has been positive for Sherpas? Of course, it's, it's, been, it's been like very positive, not only to the Sherpas, but to, you know, to, to every people that are, that are related to tourism, like, you know, from drivers in the, on, in the airport, like including the hotels, Kathmandu, you know, all of these people that are like associated with or attached to this tourism, they have always like prospered and they have always like been, become better and, and then not, uh, we don't have to like look back to our like miserable life. Has there been any negative effects? um negative you know of course yes in the uh i mean um uh you know if you if you realize in in Paslang and if you realize in the in aerospace going to aerospace camp the little difference is that um in the hindu community also also our buddhist or hindu community in the in the hindu community we care too much about other people like what other people are doing what what other what they're wearing what they're eating and that's why uh you know the tourists when they come here they they, sh they check in shorts even though like you know um uh, women wearing like very short clothes and you know like maybe some people even checking like sports bra and stuff like that that they kind of like uh, had a little negative effect on on children here um but then you know when i was working with gi volunteers we always like were like uh, aware of it and we would say like don't, do not do that here don't show that today because we were also working in a hindu community so in, in the hindu community it's a little little you know kind of respect or maybe you know trying to show off or something like that when you are not wearing proper clothes or something like that so Mm. Yeah, and that's so, that's one point I would say. Yeah, I would say it's kind of kind of, kind of distract or like um, bad thing about negative uh, impacts of tourism. So just kind of staying on the the religious track. So do you think that the, the tourism has kind of affected the spiritual significance of the mountains for the people up there? When it comes to climbing or stepping foot on Mount Everest, uh, you're the Sherpas or anybody that working in, in in this field would focus particularly on earning money. 
and uh, of course they uh, you know they have this um, like religious ceremony at base camp like to like uh, I'm sorry for the for the mother uh, mother you know Chumulunga mother the Everest too like sorry we are going to stay food there and we, we want to do this ceremony for you to be sorry and all these things but you know um, besides that you know getting to Everest and just earning and coming back home is just that's the key thing I would say rather than any um, religious or anything like that. So that's all the questions I have. Is there anything you want to kind of leave off with, a, a message or anything that you want to mention before we go? Um, Not quite, but um, of course, um, you know, the situation is all like, you know, because of the COVID, everything's like, you know, like up and down. So I can't just say anything about like marketing because I don't want people to come to come here or get affected and maybe bring, bring uh, infections here and uh, infect people and go back or something like that. So. Uh, right now, just let's let's um, be helpful for a uh, uh, nice vaccine, for like perfect vaccine that people can be, you know, vaccinated, and then you know, life goes back to normal. That's it. Mm-hmm. After COVID, hopefully, um, hopefully the business continues to grow. Yeah, of, of course, it, we're like very much hopeful. Like we we have all the preparation that we need to do after COVID, you know, stops, and then you know, like we are like we're just ready to go, like you know, bounce off this from the office and go to the mountains again. Mm-hmm. I just want to thank you very much for coming on. This was this was a great talk. You're welcome, Ethan. It was it was very like uh, very good chance for me to like speak with you, and then of course, thank you. Bye-bye.